Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 79th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Jennifer Lum, co-founder and COO at Forge AI. Jennifer is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and startup advisor. Her track record really speaks for itself. She was part of some legendary teams in the Boston tech scene, that being MCube, which was acquired by VeriSign, and Quattro Wireless, which was acquired by Apple. She then went on to be a co-founder of Adelphic Mobile, which was also acquired, this one by Time. As an angel investor, she has invested in over 30 startups, and companies like Crashlytics, Careport Health, Tribe HR, and others have also exited. In addition, she is also really well known as an advisor and mentor for lots of companies and founders. Forge AI is tackling a very complex problem with a massive market opportunity. 80% of the world's information is unstructured and not easily used by computers. That's a lot of untapped potential, and Forge AI is transforming this unstructured information into machine-ready data for computational use. The company recently announced an $11 million Series A round of funding led by Underscore VC. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of topics, like Jennifer's background, including the details on how transformative her experience was at MCube and Quattro Wireless, the story behind the founding of Adelphic and its acquisition by Time, all the details on Forge AI, her latest startup, and the market opportunity for their technology, what she looks for in a company before making an angel investment, and advice for people looking to become angel investors, her thoughts on the current state of the Boston tech scene, and companies that she is excited about, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, today's episode is sponsored by Pluralsight. It is amazing what machine learning can do. With mounds of data being harvested every day, there's so much we can learn and create. Pluralsight, the technology learning platform, is using this data for the good of tech professionals everywhere. Their AI helps you see what level your tech skills are at and recommends opportunities to keep learning. And they're looking for ways to help make their algorithms even smarter. If changing the way the world learns technology through the intersection of design, product, data science, and engineering is right up your alley, then you need to apply to work at Pluralsight. If you do want to work here, visit Pluralsight.com backslash VentureFizz to learn more. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jennifer. Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I was excited to talk to you because we have so much to talk about. I sent you kind of like an agenda and I think your reply back was, wow, that's a laundry list of questions. And it, and it is because we have a lot to talk about. You've done so much throughout your career. And actually, that was the first question I wanted to talk to you about. If you look at the history of companies that you've worked for or have founded, there really is an impeccable track record of success. Like the companies have always led to an exit. So what do you think has been like that foundation of that success for you? You know, looking back, I really attribute uh, much of my path to the original MCube team. Mm, so the good fortune uh, that I had to, to join that amazing team, to work alongside them, to grow MCube um, into a great company, to learn a lot from them, and then uh, to take that experience and leverage those relationships and that knowledge into building a whole new set of companies. I think one of the other one of the other great things about MQ was that it was an opportunity to break into the mobile industry in its earliest days, mm -hmm. and because of that, we were able to build new products and new companies together in different ways. You know, some of us got the band back together, teamed up to build new companies, um, but others uh, we became partners or customers uh, of each other, and, and it worked out very well for the group of us. 
That's awesome. That's an amazing, amazing group of people that all supported each other too. It's like, I know there's been stories written about like the MQ mafia, right? How everyone's invested in each other. And it's just been a continuous like spider web effect. That's right. And, and uh, what's extra special is that my boss from MQ, Jim Crowley, is now my co-founder in Forge. So full circle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's go back. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Toronto. Uh, technically, I grew up just north of Toronto in a suburb called Thornhill, Ontario. Got it. And what, what did your parents do for work? My dad uh, did venture investing uh, on behalf of the government. So it was a little bit different, but um, you know, he, was, he was a very early investor in BlackBerry, for example, which is pretty wow. cool. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, but, but it wasn't just tech investing that he did. He, he invested in uh, startups across the board in, in Canada. My mom was in accounting, worked for companies like IBM, but I'm, I'm the eldest in my family and she uh, did the hardest job of raising myself and my siblings uh, full time. And once my brother, who's the youngest of us, uh, got to a certain age, uh, she went back to accounting part time. Got it. Okay. Now, it seemed like early on in your career, you were involved in, in startups, right? You worked for a company called webhosting.com that was acquired. So how did you actually get into more of the, the startup type of scene? Yeah, so uh, it was a fr I have a friend um, who's a few years older than I am, and she pulled me into web hosting uh, when it was still a fairly young company. I, I don't think there were more than 15 people on staff uh, when I joined. And that was my first look and my first taste at, at startup life. And I, I, I really loved it. I, I loved being able to put my hands in all sorts of different things across the company. Um, I love the pace um, at which things moved inside the company and outside the company. And, you know, it, it really helped me uh, key in on uh, the types of in environmental factors that, that I thrived in. And at what point did you make the transition to Boston? Uh, so fast forward, um, I was working in management consulting in financial services in Toronto, which is the banking hub of Canada. And I stumbled across a company, it must have been in 2004, called MCube, which was based in Boston. Um, MCube had acquired uh, another startup based in Toronto. Mm. So spoke to them. Uh, started learning about the company, eventually led to a job offer, and I joined MCube in January of 2005, I believe. Okay. And then started working with the team down here uh, later on that year. And your role initially was chief of staff? My original role at MCube was, uh, I believe the title was client partner. Okay. Which actually was uh, account manager. Were you working the, the deal, deal or no deal account? I was not. Okay. I was peripherally involved behind the scenes, but that that was a really exciting account. You know, I, I, I still remember um, the days when, when that show would air and we'd have a whole war room set up to, to support delivery of that service. Right, because... Which specifically was text to vote. And, and yeah, and that's what it was, right? Because yeah. this was, you know, a huge show with Howie oh, Mandel. Yeah. And then yeah. they would cut to the, okay, now the audience can participate and pick the lucky case. And there actually was a cash winning, like a, the, someone won, but it would cause this fury of activity that MCube was behind the scenes supporting. It was really exciting. Ultimately, uh, post-acquisition by VeriSign, we ended up supporting shows like American Idol as well, which was also at a pretty tremendous scale. One of the most exciting things about MCube was that we worked with a lot of media and entertainment companies. 
mm-hmm. uh, who were building businesses based off of live events. So whether it be TV um, and you know entertainment focused events like Deal or No Deal or American Idol, to working with the NFL and powering the Super Bowl, um, that that was uh, really fun and exciting. To working with music artists, uh, it, it was a great it was a great company to be a part of um, during a time in my life when um, you know I, I could really engage in, in those types of fun activities. Now you eventually like had the title Chief of Staff, which is a title yep. that I've been seeing more and more common these days. So I was curious to ask you, like, what, what does that title mean? Like, what is what is that role? Well, at MCube, what that meant was uh, I, it meant that I reported directly to MCube COO, who was Jim Crowley. And the business was reaching a point where um, we really needed to start optimizing across the business, across the product and the platforms for scale. Um, and so because I had a consulting background, I was able to bring a lot of process thinking, um, you know, project management, understanding how to work cross-functionally to, to optimize um, certain pieces of the business. And I, I worked with Jim on tackling uh, a number of the strategic initiatives that needed to be rolled out across the company. Got it. Okay. And then obviously once the, uh, the acquisition happened, when they were acquired by VeriSign, Quattro Wireless was was the next startup that you worked for. So what was Quattro Wireless focused on? So the the big idea um, that the Quattro founders had was that through M-Cube, we'd really uh, established a leadership position and played a key role in enabling brands to not only reach a mobile audience, but to deliver content and messages to consumers through their mobile devices. Uh, so Andy Miller, Ishwar, Pidarshan, and Lars Albright, the founders of Quattro, realized that the next big thing in mobile, post content and messaging, would be advertising. Mm-hmm. So another way of leveraging the MCube experience was, um, as I as I mentioned earlier, many of uh, many of the companies that we worked with at MCube were media and entertainment companies. Uh, so let's help those brands move into mobile, right? Let's help them establish their presence on the mobile web. So the, the, the first part of company building for Quattro, while the, the long-term vision was around advertising, the, 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 one of the smartest moves that the founders made was to make the first step about Quattro being partnering with these brands to establish their presence on the mobile web, to make them findable um, as a brand and their product and services findable on the mobile web. And once that inventory was made available, we could then help them monetize that inventory through advertising. So it was working both with publishers, right? Companies like the New York Times, CBS, the NFL, Gannett, all all amazing content producers that ultimately had to monetize their inventory uh, through advertising. And then on the flip side, big brands like Procter & Gamble, et cetera, who needed to reach consumers uh, on their mobile devices. So the starting point was with standing up, literally standing up mobile websites, mm-hmm. growing audiences, and then partnering with brands to also help them build their mobile presence and then help them um, reach consumers by purchasing advertising through the the publishers that we'd also partnered with. Because when the company started, was that right when the iPhone was announced, like the first version, or was it right around that Time. It was prior to the iPhone launch. Right. Yeah. Cause I remember, I want to say I met Eshwar at a conference and he was showing me like the, the NFL website on like a Blackberry or something. I forget what yeah. the it was in the iPhone. Yeah. So 
Quattro started uh, not only prior to the iPhone launching, I would say it was almost, you know, the earliest days of, of smartphones emerging in market. Um, and uh, also prior to there being any real app ecosystem. So we were really building on rather simple phones, purely for browser-based media, uh, <laughs> and uh, really with the delivery of very basic and, and standard banners. So you can imagine um, how challenging and also exciting it was to try to um, maintain some semblance of a product roadmap when there were such dramatic changes and, and shifts happening in the industry from you know, building the first version of the product for basically feature phones and Blackberries to the iPhone launching to the proliferation of this huge mobile app ecosystem. There, there were a lot of twists and turns to, to try to navigate through. Well, and fast forward, um... Quattro Wireless is acquired by Apple. And I remember when that announcement hit, because it was like 2009 when the economic recession was just bad times. Yeah. Monster. It was, I mean, hindsight, it was a monster exit, 275 million. You know, now if it's not a billion, it's like, oh, nice try, right? But for then, it was a huge, huge, and it was acquired by Apple. And you don't really hear Apple acquiring companies that are, you know, publicized to that degree. Right. So if, uh, if I'm doing my logic right, Correct me if I'm wrong, but so you reported into Andy Miller, who is CEO of Quattro, and he reported into directly into Steve Jobs after the acquisition. So that tells me you are one degree removed from reporting into Steve Jobs. <laughs> very, very far removed from, from Steve Jobs, but Andy and Ishwar did have frequent um, and regular meetings with Steve. Andy in particular was uh, uh, directly reporting to Steve and in constant communication with him. Very cool. Okay. Amazing experience though, really, you know, tremendous, tremendous experience um, to, to go through that process and to be able to take a look inside Apple. And what was that day like when they announced like we're getting acquired by Apple? Like, I mean, so, you know, that's a, a unique situation, especially in that time. It was a really special day. And it was um, one that, you know, w was quite sensitive in nature, as you can imagine, um, given all of the, the scrutiny and, and the, the, the lens that Apple is under. But uh, it was just so nice to be able to celebrate that moment with the team because we had to really work hard together to get the company to that spot. You just mentioned the economic downturn towards the end of 2008. You know, we had to work through that as well. Um, we had to, to work through the, the constantly shifting market dynamics of a of an early but exploding industry and um, to be able to reach that milestone by working together as a team was really special. And that team has obviously gone off to do great things as well. So that's another conversation that we'd have to have some yeah. kind of later date. Yeah. But, uh, but then you went off and founded your own company, Adelphic. So what was Adelphic? Right. Yeah. So um, the thinking behind Adelphic was that with the, the internet really transforming multiple markets and businesses, there were many industries where transaction had become auction enabled and real-time enabled. Uh, so the travel industry is one example, the stock market is another. And for advertising, desktop um, advertising had become auction enabled 
but mobile advertising hadn't really um, reached that uh, phase yet at scale because there was one missing component uh, that was really a necessary component in order to enable that transition to occur. And that was that in mobile, um, because uh, you had to deal with lots of fragmentation from apps to browsers to different operating systems, there wasn't a consistent and reliable user identifier that would allow for um, the precise targeted uh, transactions that were possible on desktop because of cookies. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the invention um, behind Adelphic was that we had come up with a proprietary method of identifying users across environments um, that would help uh, people on the supply side, so publishers, media owners, better package up and monetize their inventory. And on the buy side, it would help buyers better identify, target, and purchase the, the audience segments that they were looking to reach. And so we built a, a real-time buy side platform that helped, that mainly catered to, to advertisers and brands to help their reach their targeted uh, and desired uh, consumers on, on mobile and, and across other devices. Now, obviously you grew the company, you raised capital, and it ultimately led to an acquisition by time in 2017. What, what was it about that? Like, why was time interested in, in acquiring your company? So time had, had acquired a, a business called Viant and Viant was built off of, um, a number of data assets, uh, one of them being the, the MySpace database. And they'd done a, a pretty good job over the years of combining that data asset combined with the data asset from Time's publishing business, which is very mature and robust, along with some others. Um, so the opportunity to combine verified, registered uh, subscriber data um, with online um, user behavior data with this great asset of mobile and cross-device data that Adelphic had been building over the years. Um, and, you know, the, the opportunity was if, if we could figure out a way to package that together and bring that to market um, as a compelling advertising solution, um, there was a real opportunity to, to grow that into a very meaningful business Got it. as an okay. independent company. Yeah. So now you're on to your fifth startup. Yep. Right? Um, so Forge AI, what, what is Forge AI all about? So Forge, Forge is really focused on the problem of unstructured data. What is the problem related to unstructured data? Uh, today, the majority of the world's information is unstructured in nature. And that means that it's not immediately usable by computers. So that becomes a problem for businesses because today, uh, thanks to the cloud, uh, almost every business has almost unlimited access to computing power, right? Um, it's almost every organization that started to build really smart technical teams um, to allow these businesses to harness the power of machine learning and advanced analytics. But the problem is that these computers and applications and models are starving for data because the majority of the world's data is unstructured in nature. Uh, so at Forge, what we've built is a platform that sources and transforms unstructured data into a machine-readable format that allows for the immediate use of this unstructured data to fuel machine intelligence. So to fuel analysis, advanced analytics, machine learning, knowledge development. 
So, it, I mean, this is very, uh, you know, Boston's known for hard tech right now. This, this is incredibly complex. So how do you, like, how do you even get started? <laughs> it's a good question. The reason why Forge is here today is because of one of my co-founders, Jack Crowley. Uh, he has wrestled with um, solutions and the technologies in this space in order to solve the problem of unstructured data for about 20 years now. Um, so, you know, Jack has had a lot of time to think through uh, uh, potential solutions, to think through how to best sew together uh, a number of technologies to create a platform that will allow businesses to start accelerating the rate at which they are able to analyze uh, problems and to make decisions at scale. So it's our hope that if, if we get to scale, um, that Forge will fuel machine intelligence across the Fortune 500 and beyond, but really help businesses start operating um, in near real time. So, I mean, this is obviously like a, a monster opportunity, like a, a massive, massive company opportunity. Now, are, is this, where, where are you at as far as the actual development of the platform? Like, or maybe is there like a, a, a use case you could give as an example of a company that could, is or could be using this for? Yeah. So, uh, um, be one of the platforms up and running. We've got, uh, uh, you know, tier one financial institutions consuming data from our platform. You know, any number of, of use cases can, can be powered by our data. I would say on the most general use case, you can think about us delivering structured, schematized data into any database that sits within the walls of a customer's uh, company. From there, that database can be directly queried by data science teams. It can be powering live dashboards and applications. And it can also be feeding models and algorithms. Uh, to be a little bit more concrete, um, it is the job of our customers to uh, tell us the types of events and information that they want to receive from Forge. Mm -hmm. Um, and in, in one example that we like to, to talk about is, um, so many months ago, there was an article published about an auto parts plant in, in, in Michigan had caught fire. Uh, nowhere in this article um, was a, um, a particular car company named, uh, but Forge was able to connect the dots between the power plant owner the, uh, and the auto manufacturer in question that could have been impacted and we connected the dots and surfaced that event as having potential impact to one of our customers. Uh, so, so today we, you know, we've got uh, top tier financial institutions consuming live data from our platform and they're using the data from everything uh, from uh, you know, risk monitoring and management to valuation modeling, to situational awareness, to knowledge development, to investment management. Now, when you have a, a type of technology that's complex as this, one of the things I've seen entrepreneurs struggle with is how do you get like early customers to like believe in you? And obviously like, like, you know, those first early adopter types, how do you secure those? So, you know, we're not, we're not actively selling in market yet. I would say we're very much in the, the customer development mode. And what we've been pretty deliberate about in our customer development activity is uh, focusing in on the companies that we believe 
uh, can be long-term strategic partners to forge, right? Mm -hmm. uh, companies who can really grow and scale with us over the life of our company. Um, and as we've engaged in these um, early partnerships and proof of concepts with the top tier financial institutions, um, what we've asked of our partners is to bring resources to the table who can help us uh, iterate and refine um, our product through these proof of concepts um, um, with us so that ultimately we can be sure that we are providing access to a highly valuable data service that they want to take advantage of over the long term. Got it. Now you're growing the team. Mm -hmm. uh, like, so how, how do you evaluate talent in terms of bringing people into the company? It does vary based on the, the different functional teams across the business. Um, I think there are uh, probably more concrete um, uh, and objective and, and specific skill sets that, that we are able to uh, both recruit against and, and, and search against um, on the technical side, you know, whether it be a programming language or a framework or a technique that is an absolute uh, essential uh, part of, of a given role. But I would say across the board, what we're really looking for are, you know, team-minded individuals who are really interested and passionate about working together to build something great. Jen, you're also known as a very active angel investor, and you've invested in lots of companies that have had successful exits like Crashlytics, Careport Health, Convey, Tribe HR. So when you're making an angel investment, like what do you look for before writing you know, or actually making that investment in the entrepreneur and the company? What I've learned over the years in early stage investing is that it's really the founders, it's really the people that, that you should focus on in terms of evaluation and assessment. So um, as I meet founders and, and, and entrepreneurs, what I, what I try to think through is uh, three, you know, three core things. One is what, what is the domain knowledge and experience that they bring to the table in trying to go after a particular market space and solution? Two, uh, what is their level of conviction and grit? Have they, have they demonstrated perseverance in the past? You know, um, how, how vested are they in, in doing everything they can to build this into a tremendous company? And then three is what, is, what is my understanding of the product that they want to build and their ability to uh, capture significant market share in, in a given market space. And ultimately, it comes down to, do I believe that they have a credible um, and unfair uh, opportunity to, to really win? So if I, if I am a, an entrepreneur looking to raise capital, like what, what advice would you give to someone? Like how would I go about A, getting on your radar, B, like what, what sh how should I pitch you or like what's the best way to get your interest? You know, I think one, one really great thing that, that's happened over the past, let's say, five to ten years or so is that um, the, the investment process has become uh, so open uh, thanks to blogging and podcasts like this. And so I think the actual mechanics around how to connect with and how to pitch an investor are pretty well-known, pretty Googleable. So, you know, uh, uh, standard things like get a warm intro. Don't, don't cold all email, cold call. Uh, get introduced by a, a trusted friend or colleague. And then I would say, you know, be, be very thoughtful around figuring out how to check as many boxes as possible to make it a very compelling opportunity and business case, right? Like 
prove that you have a very well-rounded team who can divide and conquer to, to start building a business and, and a technology and a product. Prove that you have practical experience in actually uh, selling um, and generating revenue. Yeah. Someone I've talked to other investors recently is, you know, the team, right? The, like, yeah. like, like, it just seems like a lot of entrepreneurs seem to miss that piece where if it's all about the people, right, there's technology, there's a market opportunity, but the team is so critical. It seems like some entrepreneurs seem that they just have the team slide at the bottom of the pitch deck or uh, someone else recommended, you know, if you're coming to pitch me, I want to see the whole team. Like, like I don't want to just see you as representing the founder, right? <laughs> so it just seems like entrepreneurs seem to be missing that or some of them. Agreed. It, it, you, you know, you will only win at scale with a great team. Mm-hmm. There, there's no one on earth who as an individual or a single person can build and scale a company to a really um, meaningful size on their own. So the, the team is key and um, the ability to, to find people who can work really well together and ideally divide and conquer to get something off the ground um, is really important in the early days. Now, on the flip side of that, what if someone's interested in becoming an angel investor? Like, what, how do they kind of get the process going, deal flow, you know, like, mm-hmm. what do you, what's your advice there? Well, the good news is, thanks to the change in, in crowdfunding um, rules and, and regulations, that uh, I would say upfront capital isn't necessarily a huge barrier in terms of, of getting into the game at this point, right? You can go on platforms like AngelList and others. And, and start with, um, I think, even just $1,000. So I would say, um, uh, David Cancel actually gave me this advice when he was kind enough to meet with me when I, when I first started learning about angel investing. And he said, whatever um, uh, investment you're, you're planning to make uh, in, in a startup company, if you treat it like you're not going to get the money back, you know, that's the right way to set expectations. So um, you can start with as little as $1,000. Um, I would say most people who angel invest aren't solely focused on returns and making money. It's about, you know, and for me, it's about um, the opportunity to interact with really smart entrepreneurs and technologists so that I can learn about what they're building. Um, I can uh, gain perspective on how to think through problems and opportunities in new ways. But, um, you know, entrepreneurs, I think, naturally are socializing and interacting communities of other entrepreneurs. So as you get excited and passionate about an idea that someone else is working on, you have nothing to lose by asking if you can, can write a check uh, and, and participate as an investor in an early stage company. It's the best way to get involved. Cut a check. Yeah, Yeah. very cool. Now founders shouldn't be building their company thinking of an exit, right? That's probably not a good idea, but, You've been through companies that have been acquired, you know, so you've seen the, the, it happen multiple times. Like, like, I know each scenario is probably different, but like, what, what kind of amasses to the point where there's an exit? Like, is it like, I always imagine there's like a business development deal where they're like, instead of, you know, partnering up, let's buy, or like, like, what have you witnessed that have led, whether it's, you know, companies you've been a part of or companies that you've seen as an investor that have led to that successful outcome? Uh, it's a great question. Um, and so as I, as I reflect on my experiences, um, you know, it, it has never been a scenario where uh, a single suitor comes to the table uh, and gets the deal done. There are usually uh, waves of M&A activity and conversations over the life of the company 
um, at some companies, the, the conversations started, you know, two months into starting a company, um, just and then the acquisition event not happening until several years later. Uh, but it could be an acquiring company either looking to get into a new line of business. It could be uh, a company looking to augment um, an existing asset within a business, or it could be a business just really understanding and acknowledging that they need to bring a new type of talent on board to help continue the growth of a business. But uh, it, it is uh, that the M&A process um, also does take on a life of its own and, and can be a, a very crazy roller coaster ride. Yeah, I, I'd imagine it must be uh, distracting too. Like obviously if it leads to yeah. a su- successful outcome, wonderful. But if it doesn't, if yeah. it, you know, something like that's just hours and hours and hours that have been spent spinning wheels. Right. It can also be clarifying and helpful because as you enter into M&A conversations with potential suitors, it really helps you hone in on where the key value points of your business are and um, where your true differentiators are. So in, in some ways it can be clarifying and helpful, but mm-hmm. uh, undoubtedly uh, it requires a lot of time and it requires uh, management to um, uh, spend time off of the core business and outside of the office. So who do you count on for advice or mentorship? Uh, I'm, I consider myself very fortunate to have a lot of great mentors and advisors in the Boston area. Um, probably too many to name. <laughs> uh, I do have a, a great core of um, friends who, who I'm in communication with almost on a daily basis. And they're well known to the Boston community. So, you know, uh, some of my uh, best advice comes from people like Katie Ray uh, from the engine, uh, Pamela Altsworth from SVB and Nicole Stata from Boston Seed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All incredible, incredible at what they're doing these days. Yeah. Working on really great stuff. Yeah. Now, I know every day is its own animal, but uh, it, like, what's a typical day in the life of, of Jen Lum look like? Right now, it's pretty crazy because Forge is uh, growing really rapidly, but also trying to get organized. Mm-hmm. Um, as we prepare to, to scale to the next level. So um, it's, it's any combination of uh, recruiting to uh, talking about product planning um, to uh, customer conversations. Um, it, it, it spans the board. Uh, no two days are alike, but it's a, it's a really exciting time at the company as, as we're, we're growing and preparing to shift into the next stage of commercialization. Now, how about the Boston tech scene? Like, like obviously there's been, uh, you know, a lot going on across so many different um, types of companies and technologies in the Boston tech scene. So what's the, what's your thoughts on the current vibe and is there anything that Boston can be doing better? Well, I'm probably biased in mentioning AI, uh, but I, but I'm really excited about everything that's going on uh, and growing um, anchored in AI here in Boston. I think it's, uh, really exciting that we've had big AI exits from Semantic Machines to Kensho. I think uh, the, the new college that's being established at MIT that's exclusively focused on AI with, I think it was reported at a billion dollars in funding is going to be massive for our community and also for our local companies. Um, and there's a great crop of, of, of AI focused companies that are just about to enter the growth stage. And I think that's going to be great for um, the tech community overall. Yeah, I'm also really excited about this convergence of uh, biotech and computer science. 
So with the application of computer science to biology and, and biotech, I think um, Boston is uniquely positioned to be a leader in that space because we've been a leader in biotech for decades. Mm-hmm. Are there any companies in the Boston tech scene outside of you know, your portfolio of investments that are like super exciting for you? I think Ginkgo Bioworks is really exciting mm-hmm. as a company. I think they're on an amazing growth trajectory. Um, I think Circle Financial is is really interesting, and I'm very curious to see how how uh, you know how they continue to evolve in, in the crypto space and in the financial services space. Mm-hmm. Um, Desktop Metal uh, is is doing great things um, for Boston and for for companies around the globe. Cool. DraftKings. DraftKings, yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, so you just Those. mentioned four different very unique companies, but all super you know pillar like. I guess yeah. metal just you know raise money at 1.5 billion dollar valuation. It's like, amazing. It's great for Boston. And then Toast, and then of course you know companies like like HubSpot and Wayfair that continue to thrive in the public markets. It's it's great for Boston, and particularly as uh, the entrepreneurially minded team members from these companies start cycling back into the early stages and starting companies of their own. It's going to be it's going to be awesome. Yeah, something I've I've been thinking about because uh, with desktop metal and then when i when i published the venture phys email this this morning it, one of the you know little paragraphs was spotted unicorns and those, those two companies that were announced as unicorns last week in boston and people were like mm, you know so humble so yeah you know, it was desktop metal 1.5 and then quickbase got a billion dollar you know right buyout from private equity firm right so it's just like these companies just that are in the backyard of boston unicorns but you know it's just such a different humble mentality which i applaud i'm not knocking it but it just yeah you had to dissect and figure out the valuations of companies i bet you'd find a ton more unicorns in boston than what people know right and moderna just having the the largest biotech ipo recently also a cambridge company great things are happening here it's really exciting yeah there's a ton going on now you uh you travel quite a bit so uh what where's your favorite places to travel these days oh boy I like, I like exploring new places. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's a new place that I visited recently? I, I recently visited Switzerland for the first time. Ooh, got fun. to spend some time in the mountains, got to explore Geneva a little bit. And that was really nice, really cool to see. That's awesome. Different from, from the, the city and urban type <laughs> travels that are uh, more aligned with my business travel. Yep, that makes sense. Well, Jen, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your background story and all the great things that you've accomplished as an entrepreneur and as an uh, angel investor and looking forward to Forge AI being the next pillar company in Boston. Thanks, Keith. And thanks to you and VentureFizz for being a great supporter for our community. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you share it with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. Plus, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It all definitely helps. Once again, thanks to our friends at Pluralsight for sponsoring this episode. Pluralsight is a technology learning platform, and they are rapidly growing the team in Boston. If changing the way the world learns technology through the intersection of design, product, data science, and engineering is right up your alley, then you need to apply to work at Pluralsight. Visit pluralsight.com backslash to learn more.